Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Isaiah uh, chapter 41. Please turn to Isaiah chapter 41. And we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with the sword, to windblown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not yet traveled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. The islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. They help each other and say to their companions, be strong. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith and the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One says of the welding, it is good. The other nails down the idol so that it will not topple. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, You descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its father's corners I have called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Let's come to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who is not silent, but a God who speaks. We thank you, Lord, that the spirit that has inspired these words will now apply these words to our heart and that we would go from here changed people because of it. Amen. Uh, your great country, the United States of America, has given the world a lot. Some good things, some bad things, some ugly things. But what about some terrifying things? Uh, The year is 1975, a year after my birth, and uh, this film uh, came out, uh, if you've got it on the screen, I don't know whether it's gonna come up, a very uh, famous uh, film, the film of Jaws. Now, I come from the coast about an hour from England on the English Channel. There has never been a great white shark in the English Channel, unless it got horrendously lost. This film, produced by Spielberg, an American, an American film, terrorized me as a child. I would never go swimming. When I went into a swimming pool, and looked down the deep end, I was terrified. 
Now, this is a, an iconic movie, as you will know. Some people say it's the depiction of the crisis of masculinity in 1970s America. Some people say it's the paranoia of authority in a post-Watergate situation. It's a film about a shark that eats people. <laughs> and it was terrifying. What makes it so terrifying, partly, is the iconic music by John Williams. I won't get you to sing it, but you know what it is, don't you? Those of you who are musicians, it's the minor second interval. Apparently, Spielberg heard it and said to John Williams, I don't like it. But later he was persuaded. And that's what gives the music what I'm going to call the theme of an approaching menace. Our world, our lives, have many approaching menaces. What's your minor second interval? Approaching menace could well be the soundtrack to many of our lives in the West, in the UK, in the US, as we are faced with menaces that seem legion, political, global, technological, environmental, I don't know about you, but where, for, where I'm from, in churches and throughout the culture, there is a feeling of fear, insecurity, uncertainty, and plain dread as many people feel that their lives are just spiraling out of control. And people are feeling increasingly breathless, constricted by circumstances that they don't have any control over. Now, there's lots of cultural reasons for this. One writer calls this the environment of fear. I think it's exacerbated by the speed of movement in our culture, which heightens a sense that we never know what's coming next. Things are coming at us so quickly in our culture that we don't have time to explore or to react and cope. And that accelerating culture changes our relationships. The sociologist Zygmunt Bauman remarks that our relationships today are liquid. How do I have long-term relationships with people if you are liquid and a shifting individual and so am I? And that tragic trajectory, no matter uh, what we might say about romantic love, means that because there is no stability in our relationships, we cut ourselves off from both loving others and receiving love from them. I think that's very much a mark of our society. Thirdly, I think there's just a sense of powerlessness. And many people do feel out of control as the approaching menace comes. And for many people, again, in the UK, increasingly in the US, I think, if there is a God, that God is distant, even if he, she, or it exists, that God can't help me, that God won't help me, either way, that God is not worthy of my worship. And I think as Christians, we sometimes entertain similar thoughts. 
For aren't we faced with the same approaching menaces that seem overwhelming? And we ask, where is God in all of this chaos? Now, in Isaiah 41, the Lord creates his own courtroom scene with himself as both the interrogator and the contestant, I suppose. The minor second, the the approaching menace of one from the east, is Cyrus of Persia, who is rapidly conquering all before him and who is creating great fear and trembling among the watching nations, including Israel, who herself is captive. Now, to keep our kind of marine theme going, it's as in the cartoon, the little fish has been eaten by the bigger fish, and now an even bigger fish is coming along. And the Lord's first question in verse 2 is this, who is behind this approaching menace? Who's behind it? And the Lord's first answer, verse 4, is this, I am. Here we have, friends, an unambiguous affirmation of the Lord's sovereign might and right over this event, even all events, past, present, future. He is behind all rulers and empires, whether despotic or benign. And immediately, I don't know about you, but we do find that answer awkward and uncomfortable. And it's worth remember as we think about approaching menaces in our own lives, in our own culture, in our own world, the glorious truth of God's sovereignty. God's hand may be behind all things, but God's word is unambiguous in its affirmation that individuals and nations are held responsible and accountable for their actions and will be judged accordingly. And then we contemplate that at the end of the day, if God is not in total control and the ultimate explanation of all events, then who or what is? For someone or something must always be an ultimate explanation. Is it that our God is subject to another personal God or to an impersonal fate or to blind chance to our free decisions? For me, that's far more uncomfortable, far more concerning. And if we are still in doubt concerning the evidence of God's sovereignty over history, we fast forward to another courtroom interrogation when the spokesperson of another all-conquering world empire, Pontius Pilate, asked the Lord Jesus Christ, Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or crucify you? And our Lord, bloodied and beaten, to all human appearances, just a passive victim. What does Jesus say? You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Look, we don't have all the answers or know all the reasons, for we are not God. But surely it's a comfort to know that it's our Lord who truly is the Lord of history. 
Now, what happens in response? Two pictures, I suppose. Tragically, there are those who are blinded to this sovereign Lord behind the scenes and who only see the approaching menace. They only see Cyrus, and they are terrified. Verse 5, the islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. Now, how do they respond? Well, in verses 5 to 7, the story takes a darkly satirical turn as we see these trembling nations shuffle onto the stage, looking for encouragement from one another, giving terrible pep talks, looking for protection from their objects of devotion. These works of human hands need a helping hand or some quick DIY to stop them falling over. I mean, it's ridiculous. There's a world superpower coming, and they're building these things that they have to nail down because they're about to fall over. Now, this is very interesting. Isaiah 41 is quite an interesting passage if we look at a biblical theology of idolatry. Why? Because this is one of the only passages that talks about the um, importance or the focus on idol construction. Yes, idols are spoken a lot about in the Bible, but this is one of the only passages that focuses on the construction of idols, not simply their worship. Now, in a very uh, illuminating essay by um, a guy called Curtis Chang, he wrote an apologetics book years ago, but this is an essay that I think he wrote as an undergraduate. It's incredible. He does a great job on this passage. Listen to what he says about the importance of why Isaiah wants to focus on people who make idols when there is an approaching menace. Listen to this. The author, Isaiah, seems to imply that identity can only be secured by a source truly external to oneself. The deception of idolatry, of course, is that it provides such an external foundation. That is why the tangible presence of an idol statue is so important to pagans. But by focusing on idol making, Isaiah explodes that deception. The true existential source of idols is simply the shaky self. Idolatry is more commonly condemned in Scripture as false worship, placing one's trust or allegiance in something other than God, but in focusing the practice on idol-making highlights an even deeper cell level of sin, the human attempt to supplant God as ultimate creator and definer of self. Elsewhere, Chang says this, there is a terrible, vicious circle here as the one who believes their identity is a product of choice is the one in most need of a prefabricated identity. Idolatry and autonomy go together. Idols are shaky because they are created by shaky selves. Now, do you see the profound nature of that quotation. 
in a culture, in all of our cultural apologetics that we do, where identity is such a big issue. Here is the thing. When humans are faced with an approaching menace, we know that we need to build something to protect us. And we think that thing is going to protect us, but we don't know who we are. We've made something to give us our identity, so that thing doesn't have an identity either because we've made it. We build, we want external identity, but we've built it. Idolatry and autonomy go together. And the problem is, the things that we make to give us protection, they're not God. And under interrogation, when it hits the fan, when the approaching menace comes, these gods that we make, they have no answers. They don't know what's happened. They don't know what is happening. They don't know what will happen. As Isaiah says, they are blind and dumb. And as we learn elsewhere in Scripture, we make blind and dumb idols and then we become like them. As you will know, Isaiah 40 to 55 contains these amazing passages of God's otherness, his supremacy, his lordship, his majesty, interspersed with very mundane accounts of idol worship. And you think, does the writer really know what he's doing? Why would you put these like soaring pictures of God's majesty next to, next to these satirical passages? But of course, Isaiah knows exactly what he's doing. As Os Guinness says, contrast is the mother of clarity. When we see the majestic nature of God and his sovereignty, the one who knows everything, the one who has been there from the beginning and will always be there in contrast to these idols that we just make. What an amazing contrast. And this scene of the nations making gods to give them security in face of an approaching menace is all too familiar to all of us. Because this is a desperate scene. Many people's first resort, often their ultimate resort, is to build things that they think will give them an escape route when sickness comes, when relational breakdown comes, when bad grades come, when promotion doesn't come. These are the escapes that we make to provide certainty, to offer security to give answers, to offer control, to soothe our fevered brows. And the list is endless. Money, relationships, politics, nation, software, education, gender, work, sport, ethnicity, alcohol, books. Now many of these things are great things to be enjoyed and they have a place in the world when the tidal wave of life comes crashing in, which it will to all of you, if these things are made ultimate things, they will show themselves 
to be worthless. Verse 29, see they are all false, their deeds amount to nothing, their images are but wind and confusion. But of course, we're devoted to them. We really believe they will help us. And so we pick up the pieces when the idol topples over, we patch it up, and we wait for the next onslaught. And we give these things a second chance and a third chance and a fourth, and we become more obsessed with them, more compulsive, more desperate, more fearful, and that is what is called addiction. If you trust in idols, you will always be afraid. Always. Now God speaks. Verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have called, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from the farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. God tells us there is comfort to be found in the approaching menace of Cyrus, of sickness, of relational breakdown, of life. It is God who now speaks. And look, it's God who names. We are not left to build our own identity. God has given it to us. Look, three names God calls his people of increasing intensity and intimacy. Israel, my servant. I'd be happy with that. I know who I am. I'm God's servant. What a calling. What an identity. No, no, there's more. Jacob, whom I have chosen. Jacob, you will know, maybe is shorthand for the patriarchal tradition. Not only is Israel a servant, but we're part of God's family. I'd be happy with that. Part of God's family. More. Abraham. My friend. Wow. These people are not just servants of God. They're not just part of God's family. They can be called God's friend. And please note, all of these titles, servant, Jacob, friend, those titles only make sense if there is an external source to give us the names. To be a servant, you need a master. To be chosen, you need a chooser. To be called a friend, you need a friend. In the living God, the people of God have an external source that is forever stable and not shaky. And so the people of God's identity is stable and not shaky. Not liquid, but solid. Because God is solid. And God says, 
You are this. Now, this awesome Lord who orchestrates world events is the same Lord who takes hold of the hand of little Israel and the worm Jacob and says, do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid. Friends, this Lord is our Lord. Now, the thing I want to say here is it's not so simple to say, if you trust in God, you won't be afraid. Because there is a sense in which we are to fear. There is a healthy fear. I know that Southeastern does have some connections with Oxford and C.S. Lewis, so I've got to get a Narnia quote in, and I'm a Brit. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And it's this Lord who is the first and the last, who in the first century walked out on water to his disciples, disciples who were struggling against wind and waves, and they were terrified because they believed this ghost was an approaching menace. But the Lord comes to them and says to them, take courage and don't be afraid, because the Lord Jesus is the great I am who can control all things, who is behind all things, even the wind and the waves. And it's this Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Israel, who in his person and work takes on the identity of a suffering servant, chosen by God and the friends of sinners. He fulfills this calling of Israel, Israel my servant, Jacob whom I have chosen, Abraham my friend. And as we are united to Christ by his spirit, his identity becomes our own. My old boss, Mike Ovi, who was the principal of Oak Hill College, did a great essay for Thamelios called What's, uh, Choose Your Fears Carefully. This is what he says. We are not to fear the idols and elemental principles that people without God do fear. We need not fear them because God, who is infinitely more powerful than us, can deliver where we cannot. One current challenge for us is whether we fear God enough so that we need not fear the things that the nations do. What we fear reveals a lot about where we think power truly lies. What exactly do we fear and in what order? Friends, it's in this Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are to root ourselves. As we are united to Christ by God's Spirit, His identity becomes our own. And we experience humble confidence and security knowing who we are solid, stable, knowing that we are His. And that's why Peter, the same guy who was in the boat, who was terrified when Jesus calmed the storm, he says in his letter, 
Do not fear what other people fear. Don't fear other people or their threats. But in your hearts, set apart Christ the Lord as holy. Guys, I want you to think about your approaching menaces in your life. Some of them will be very personal to you. What are your minor seconds? If you close your eyes, what are the things that come towards you that give that Jaws music? Students, maybe some of you are thinking, should I be here? I've got imposter syndrome. Everyone seems so much better, more godly, brighter, more beautiful. I'm struggling with the competition. Faculty, you're thinking, should I be here? Imposter syndrome. I think of one of Southeastern students who I taught this year on home assignment about to go back to India where the city she's going to will be submerged in the cult of Kali. And she's fearful. So when as a seminary student or faculty the criticism of a colleague leaves you feeling crushed, God says your worth and identity is not determined by that criticism. It's in your identity in Christ. And when you feel threatened, God says you belong to Christ and no one will ever snatch you out of his hand. And when you feel you don't belong, God says that in Christ you are part of his family and part of a family tree and a heritage that can be traced back from before the creation of the world. You belong to Christ. And yes, you want to go. And yet you are fearful. And yet you, we need our fears recalibrated. In um, January 1933, shortly before Hitler came to power, Dietrich Bonhoeffer preached a, a sermon on the evening of the second Sunday after Epiphany. And it was a time of great uh, tension in Berlin. They didn't know what was going to happen. And people were scared. Here's what Bonhoeffer says. You of little faith, why are you so fearful? In these words, we must hear all the disappointment of Jesus Christ in his disciples and all his love for them. Do you still not know that you are in God's hands? That where I am, God is? Why are you so fearful? Be of good courage, strong, firm, adult, sure, confident, not shaking with fear. Don't hang your heads. Don't complain about what bad times these are. I am in the boat. And Christ is here too, in the nave of this church. So why not hear him and believe him? Therefore, over the wind and confusion of the claims of the 21st century false gods and false lords, in the face of continuing approaching menaces. God says to his little worm church, not to be afraid, 
but to renew its strength. Your context is slightly different than ours in the UK. I think you're heading to where we're heading. As a Christian community, as a Bible-believing Christian community in the UK, we feel so small. We're often tired. We're dispirited. We're seemingly defeated. But our identity is stable and secure. And so with confidence, we proclaim to the scared, shaky selves all around us the hope and certainty that the Lord of history offers. We call the nations to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us when we know that our first resort when faced with approaching menaces in our lives is to build works of our own hands. So stupid, so futile, ridiculous, irrational. And yet, Lord, we know that these things cannot save us. Lord, we just fill with awe and gratitude and wonder as we recognize that you have given us our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel, my servant. Jacob, whom I have called. Abraham, my friend. That in Christ we have those titles. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people that wherever we are and wherever we go, into whatever fearful context you place us, humanly speaking, that we would know that you are a God who is for us, that our identity is solid and stable because you are a God who is solid and stable. You have given us our identity and so there is a freedom and a joy that we have to proclaim the Lordship of Christ. Lord, help us to recognize that you are the sovereign Lord of history. We thank you that you are the Lord who is for us and not against us. Lord, help us be those in a cultural crisis where people do not know who they are. They make things and then they become like those things they make and it's futile. Help us to be people, as Bonhoeffer said, who are sure and confident and adult and who have rightly recalibrated their fears. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.